exorcists over Montreal. But just wait, just wait. We live in one of the most egalitarian periods, societies, in human history. And yet, prejudice, ethnic discrimination, social polarization is as evident today as it ever was. And so the question this morning is, what does God have to say about that? Our text this morning and next week brings us closer to the end of the first major section of what affectionately is referred to as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know it like I know it in my Bible as the Acts of the Apostle, but it really is more about the Acts the incredible acts of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that this morning. But we're about to be surprised. Now, a real change is coming, but it's not like it arrives out of nowhere. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when none other than Peter, who is the person we're going to deal with primarily this morning, um, when he's giving his message in Jerusalem and he cites the prophet Joel, he says something that is going to become amazingly evident as we work through the passage this morning. He, he says, then everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's going to say sensibly the same thing when he appears before the religious council in Acts chapter 5. And in spite of how clear the covenant was, and maybe I should say in spite of how evident the covenant is, going right back to Genesis 12, this was going to be the real surprise in chapters 10 and 11 of Acts. Now, I, I want to respect the narrative nature of this passage this morning. It's a story, and so I want to treat it like a story. It's almost like it's a theater piece with front stage, backstage, new stage, off stage. And so this morning, I want to read the text with you and make some punctual comments as we're working through. And that'll lead us at the end to my infamous, so what's? And there's two of them this morning. The front stage in which the text begins is scene one. And none other than a Roman centurion will get a vision brought by an angel. Backstage is scene two, and Peter will get a vision, and it's the voice of the Lord that is talking to him. Now, stage three becomes the new front stage. It's scene three, and now Peter will interact with Cornelius. And then scene four moves off stage, and all of a sudden we see the reaction to what actually took place. And all of that will help us to get a bigger picture 
of what this means for us in this polarized era that we live in today. So let's begin with scene one. And scene one actually begins at the end of chapter nine, where we were last week, and works through the first eight verses of chapter 10. So if you've, you've got your pew Bible or your telephone or uh, your whatever text of scripture you deal with, let's look at it together. You'll notice that before we get into chapter 10, let's just remember what Luke records at the end of chapter 9. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Now, this is a pattern, and we're going to see it again today, where the apostle, after he does his work, he stays for a period of time. We saw that Jesus did the same thing with the Samaritans in John chapter 4. But Luke is very insistent that something was going on in Joppa. And seven times in our text this morning, we're going to be taken back to the name of that city. And it raises the question, why is Joppa so important? Okay, let's read scene one. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment or the Italian Cohort. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision, and he distinctly saw an angel of the Lord. He came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he said. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring them to the home of Simon called Peter, who is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told him everything that had happened and sent them right away to Joppa. Now, before we leave this scene, we meet Cornelius, and we're told that he's a centurion, which means that he was responsible for, guess, a hundred soldiers. Centurion, okay, hundred people. And he would have been part of a cohort or a regiment that would have made up, been made up of 600 soldiers, which was a significant part of what the Romans considered to be a legion. This is all taking place in Caesarea, which was the city that um, the Caesar and Herod the Great had built by the sea, and it was the provincial capital for Palestine. But what's interesting is that Luke doesn't put the emphasis on this man's vocation. He puts the emphasis on his virtuous life. And we see in verse 2, and in verse 4, in verse 22, and then again in verse 31, this was a man of deep spirituality. He wasn't, it doesn't appear, that he was a proselyte. It doesn't appear that he had converted as a Roman to Judaism. He's only referred to as a God-fearer, which meant that he was very, very respectful of Israel's God, but he'd never been circumcised. But in scene one, don't let the contrast escape you. Peter, the de facto leader of the apostles, 
is staying with Simon the Tanner. Now, a, a tanner worked with dead animals. He took their skins and he turned them into leather, which meant that he was ceremoniously unclean according to Jewish standards. But Peter doesn't seem to have a problem with staying with another Jew who was ceremoniously unclean. Now, when Cornelius gets the vision, he sends his two servants and another soldier, and they make the 48-kilometer trip to Joppa, which now takes us to scene two. And this begins in verse 9, and will go all the way through to verse 23. Let's read scene two. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheep being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Then the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering what the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Peter then invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, before we read scene three, a couple of comments. Um, there's, there's a wonderful um, biblical exegete, a man by the name of Howard Marshall. He's passed away now. But as, as I was reading his work on this text, um, he draws our attention to three things which we need to remember. Um, first of all, Luke always likes to put the emphasis that when people pray, God shows up. God speaks. Um, now second, the emphasis would appear to be on Peter's hunger. But that's just a pretext for something else that's going to happen. But third, he falls into a trance. Now, this is during the heat of the day. And a centurion's house would obviously have an awning that would have hung over the balcony where he might have been sitting, was probably sitting. And so the awning becomes the context for the vision. Now, the vision is quite clear. Get up, kill, and eat. And the word is very clear. Peter, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And this happens three times. 
And it's not for want that Luke puts the emphasis on three. Think about the different incidences in Peter's life when three things happened. And it's the way God gets to him. Peter denied Jesus three times. At the end of John, Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? And now, God shows up again in our passage, scene two, and shows him the vision three times. Peter hard-headed? Maybe. Am I hard-headed? Yes. Okay. God wants to get the message through. Now, now what's going on here? Really what's transpiring is that Peter is learning several years later what Jesus had already said in Mark 7. That all foods are clean. And Paul will say almost the same thing in Romans chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, and then again in 1 Timothy 4. And so all of a sudden, God's project is starting to get clear. But in verse 19, hear it clearly the Spirit said to him. And the vision is sensibly that Peter is saying, Peter, feel free to go to the Gentile home and eat what they serve. It's clean. And so is the Gentile. You see, it, it was one thing for Jews to offer hospitality to Gentiles. But at this time period, it was quite another to accept the hospitality of a Gentile. And now we're getting to the heart of the matter. And the Spirit said, go Without hesitation. Now, in the same context, in the same scene, we learn that the Spirit had spoken to Cornelius. And he'd been directed by a holy angel in verse 22. So we've got the Spirit coming at two men from two different angles. But the story is quite clear. God is talking Peter, are you listening? Cornelius, are you listening? And so that leads us to scene three. And now we have a new front stage. I'll let you read all of scene three on your own when you get home uh, this afternoon or this evening. I'm going to concentrate just on Peter's message which begins in verse 33. Now, scene 3 goes from the end of verse 23 till the end of the chapter. But before we look at what Peter actually said to Cornelius, I want to point out some really interesting thing. Um, the text begins, scene 3 begins, the next day, and Peter went with six companions. Now, was Peter thinking... I'm, I'm, I'm going to cover my bases here. I'm going to have to have some witnesses to what I'm going to do. Uh, were these close friends of Peter that said, hey, we're along for the ride? Why six? But, but, but they go together. 
Now, when they get to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, the first thing that Cornelius does is he bows down to worship Peter. And Peter does the Jewish thing. I'm just a mortal. Stand up. We only worship Yahweh. But by now, Peter's vision is becoming clear. Because in verse 28 of our passage, Peter says, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate and visit a Gentile. Now, what's interesting is that this is not the typical word in the Greek language for a Greek or a Gentile. This is, this is another word. And the word that's used here in this text, this is the only place it's found in the New Testament. But when this word is used in the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, it was a very derogatory term. It was one that had all sorts of racial, not religious overtones. And Peter was simply saying, Cornelius, you know, according to, my, to our law, I shouldn't be hanging out with people like you, and you can fill in the adjectives to what this term would have meant. But now Peter's getting the message. Because in verse 28, he says, But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Now remember, the vision was about a blanket, an awning, coming down with all sorts of four-footed creatures and all sorts of animals. But now, through the vision, what God said, the 48-kilometer walk, Peter's putting two and two together. He's coming up with four. The vision isn't about food. It's about people. And so, now... Following up on Cornelius' question, Peter explains. And let's look at what Peter says. This is a classic discourse. We find multiple discourses in Luke's Acts of the Apostles. And this is just a classic one. It fits the form almost to the T. Begins in verse 34 and verse 35. This is part one. Then Peter began to speak. It's almost like Peter becomes the prophet. It's like Peter becomes the teacher. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is just. And so Peter starts his discourse by talking about himself but more importantly, about God. God is a God who shows no partiality. But that's not new. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15. 2 Chronicles 19 and verse 7. The Old Testament is clear. The God of creation is no respecter of persons. And Peter starts off there. He creates even ground for him and Cornelius and those that are there. Verse, verse 36. You know 
The message God sent to, to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ and he is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. And so he moves from equal ground and now he centers the message on the life of Jesus with an echo, if you will, back to Isaiah 55, that the Messiah would be the bearer of peace, insinuating, Cornelius, you know that Jesus is the peace bearer. Now in verse 38, we get to the core of the message. And now Peter's going to retell the story, okay? Creates common ground in verses 34 and, uh, 36, uh, 34 and 35. He centers his message on the story of Jesus. And now in this part, he moves to talk about salvation. Listen closely, beginning in verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him, hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people. And so now the message of salvation is put front and center. Now, we're going to learn why he took that tactic when we get to scene four. But Peter has done the classic thing. Create the even ground amongst listeners. Gives the big story. Moves to the message so that now... At the end of 42 and in 43, there's a call to respond. And notice what he says. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of living in the dead. All the prophets testify about him. And so, so now Peter's starting to elicit a reaction, a response. This is the God who sent Jesus. This is the God who let him die. This is the God who provides salvation. This is the God who rose Jesus from the dead. You know all of this, Cornelius. This is the God who calls for accountability. This is a God who calls for response. And then he finishes his message at the end of verse 30, 43 by talking about a gift. And what's the gift that God offers? The gift forgiveness of sins now scene three ends in the strangest of ways for Peter put your feet in Peter's sandals for a minute he hasn't finished preaching and the spirit pours the spirit on Cornelius and his family and those that are there 
It must have been. Like lightning hit the place. Like, Lord, this is what you did at Pentecost. Lord, this is what you did in Samaria in chapter 8. And Lord, you're doing it again. And what's so interesting here, now catch the verb in verse 47. Can anyone withhold water from those that have been immersed (laughs) by the Spirit? But the word here, withhold, actually has the idea of hindering, blocking. And now all of a sudden it starts to make sense. What had Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16? Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And what you open, I will have already opened. And what you close, I will have already closed. And now it must be becoming to make sense to Peter why there's another door to the kingdom that's opening up. Can I hinder this? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. It's obvious because it's already happening. And what happens? The classic pastoral response. Cornelius, the family, the extended friends and family say, Peter, could you stay with us here in Caesarea? And Peter understood, I can't go back to Joppa right away. And so he stays in Caesarea. So, scene one, Cornelius' vision. Scene two, Peter's vision. Okay, scene three in the story, Peter arrives and he confronts and does the message bearing and something unbelievable took place. And Peter understood, I can't hinder it. And so the best way not to hinder it was to join it and he stayed for a while to teach, to minister, to form Gentiles. These despicable people that we don't hang out with. Now we come to scene four. Now, um, uh, Preacher's Liberty. I'm back with you next Sunday for Acts 11. And so I decided I was going to take a tactical move here. We're going to deal with the first 18 verses of chapter 11, which will make my task a little bit more simpler next Sunday. But chapter 11, 1 to 18, really goes with chapter 10. So now we got a new front stage in chapter 11. And notice what happens. The apostles and the believers, chapter 11, throughout Judea heard that Gentiles had also received the word. Now, there's a funny thing that sometimes happens with manuscripts. As the New Testament was being compiled, there were many ancient manuscripts, some of them as as accurate as others, but some of them, there's some, they're they're not disparities, they're they're, they're complementary facts. And some of you might have this addition in the bottom of your text. 
Um, I, I, I brought it along this morning so that you, you get what happens. And this is from certain, and a large number of manuscripts from the same period. And, and here's what one scribe added. Verse 2. Peter, therefore, for a considerable time, wished to journey to Jerusalem. And having called to him the brethren, and having strengthened them, he departed, speaking throughout the country and teaching. He also went to meet them, and he reported to them the grace of God. But the brethren of the circumcision disputed with him, and saying, You went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them? So, so what's going on with, with these other manuscripts? Probably there was a scribe that didn't want Peter to be misunderstood. He didn't want it to be communicated that certain people with power in Jerusalem convened him to put him on trial. So we continue with Peter's ministry indicating that Peter showed up in Jerusalem on his own accord. Probably both are true. Uh, in most of our texts, we end up with the shorter verse 2. But, but what happens? Peter gets to Jerusalem, and now in scene 4, Peter is going to get grilled. Now, I, as I was working through the text this week, I thought, isn't this interesting? The charge against Peter was that he went and stayed with uncircumcised people. They didn't ask him or grill him, how could you ever baptize non-Jews before they'd been circumcised? He didn't ask, they didn't ask, what type of food did you eat? Was it really unclean? They didn't say anything that he'd been spending time with an unclean Jew in Joppa. They wanted to know who he was hanging out with. And now all of a sudden, the vision becomes clear. The vision was not about food. Jesus had already said all things are clean. This was about who you show favor for. Who you spend time with. Who you hang out with. And so, Peter recounts the story. Now let's read scene 4, beginning in verse 4. Starting from the beginning, Peter told, I love this, the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet coming down from heaven uh, by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up into heaven. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house as I was saying, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. The six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us what he had seen, and an angel had appeared at his house and said, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. Now, catch verse 14. This is the new innovation that comes in the whole story. 
He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. It's almost like Luke saves the most important point for these dissident, diffident people in Jerusalem, and he saves it for us, the reader. This is all about Cornelius wanting to get the message of salvation because he knew his virtuous life was not enough. And so now, Peter's message makes perfect sense. Verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them just as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered, okay, now Peter is starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. I remembered what the Lord had said, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift that he has given us, now catch what he says. Who was I to think that I could hinder God's way? So the same thing that struck him back in Caesarea when the Spirit came down on Cornelius and his family and the Spirit arrived, he couldn't hinder water baptism. And so he uses the same verb here when he's talking to these diffident, recalcitrant leaders in Jerusalem. I couldn't hinder God's way. Now, two things happen. Both things are really important. When they heard this, they had no further objections. Literally, they were silent. Can you imagine how tense that room must have been when Peter showed up? Can you imagine the people calling out to Peter, how could you do this? And now all of a sudden when Peter tells them the story, and notice it was almost exactly what happened in chapter 10, but with that one little addition in verse 14 about why Cornelius had convened him. And what was their first reaction? Silence. But then it says, but they praised God. Because they were moved because they began to realize Acts chapter 2 is real history. The message is for everyone. And so they said, so even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, we know that this is not the end of the story. Because we know that when we get to chapter 15... Um, there are some people that are going to say, okay, yep, the Cornelius story is true, but still, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to become a Jew first. And so that battle is still on the horizon. And we know that Paul is going to have to confront Peter in Galatians chapter 2, because in spite of the power of the story and of the event, he waffled. <laughs> and Paul had to call him out. Peter, you're a hypocrite. 
Some people who are Gentiles, you don't have any problems eating with them. But with when Jews and Gentiles are together, you don't want to hang out with the Gentiles. What's that called, Peter? It's called hypocrisy. And Peter, as much as admits in 2 Peter chapter 3, that Paul had to set him straight. Scene 1, a vision. An incredible vision. A, a story-breaking vision. Scene two, Peter gets a vision, a troubling vision, one that on the surface is about eating, but in reality, it's about how you treat people. Chapter three, the message. God got through to Peter. And then chapter four, there's dissension in the ranks, but neither Peter nor those leaders in Jerusalem wanted to hinder the work of God. Okay, so what? What, what? what does this mean? Uh, there, there's two things that really struck me afresh as I was reworking the text this week and preparing. I think fundamentally, this story is about Peter's ongoing conversion. I mean, think about this, dear guy. Um, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, Jesus calls him. And he says, follow me, and I will make you to become a fisher of men. In Matthew chapter 16, um, Peter is resistant to Jesus predicting his death. And Jesus does the Jesus thing. He says, Peter, your name is Petros. You're a little stone. But upon... This Petra, <laughs> this rock. And unfortunately, we've only got the written word. We don't have the theater. I can just imagine Jesus bending down, picking up a little stone, and he says, Peter, you're like this. You're a little Petras. But upon me, Petra, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And Peter, I'm sure, I mean, if I'd been in Peter's sandals, I'd have done, what the heck is he talking about? Well, then we get his denial. I don't even know this guy. And in spite of my accent, and you think that I'm from uh, up in, in Galilee. No, I don't know him. And he denies them three times and then weeps bitterly at his lack of backbone. But Jesus doesn't give up on him. And in John chapter 21, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? It's almost like the threefold denial becomes a threefold affirmation of where's Peter's heart. And then at Pentecost, he becomes this de facto leader. But his conversion is incomplete till chapter 10. And here's the so what. My friends, I'm sure glad that God continued to convert me to his cause, to his person. If God can do it with Peter, he can do it with me. And here's the good news, and he can do it for you. Because God is in the conversion business. And this story is ultimately about Peter's ongoing conversion. And in our tradition, we affirm 
with deep conviction the necessity of a second birth. To decide to follow Jesus as an, as an adult, proclaim before others in the water of baptism that we are followers of Jesus. And, and that message is a wonderful message. But my friends, it's not once for the everything in your life. God will continue your conversion by his spirit one day at a time. And quite frankly, Peter was a racist. <laughs> Face it, this is his ethnocentrism. And God says, if you're going to follow me and be my disciple and be my apostle, we got to deal with your racism. we got to deal with your ethnocentrism. And God leaves this story to remind us that God wants us to face our own sin and our own evil and face up to it so that we can follow Jesus more seriously. Now, let me get to the second, so what? But I did raise the question today. Why Joppa? Why seven times? Okay, here's my, my best guess, okay? Take this one. This one's free, okay? Um, Joppa was important for another prophet in the Bible. None other than Jonah. God spoke to Jonah and he said, Jonah, I want you to go east. I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to call those people to repentance. And so what did Jonah do? He went down to Joppa. And he went as far west as he could. God said, go east. Jonah said, I'm going. God said, go east. I'm going west. So Joppa becomes the place in which God deals with people that don't want the message to be shared with those that aren't like us. Now God miraculously saved Jonah. Sent him to Nineveh. And the biggest revival. The biggest spiritual conversion recorded in the Bible. Is in Nineveh. So Joppa is important. And so as we read the story. All of a sudden Joppa is an opening. For what God wants to do. Okay so here's my second so what. How do we face up to our own ethnocentrism? How, how do we face up to our own attitudes about God has favorites? Or maybe we can put it the other way. Um, who, who are the people on your list that God can never reach out to or use you to reach out to them? And how do you face up to your own privilege? Um, your own faction, um, your own differentiations. And how are you letting the Spirit of God transform you? Because, my friends, the history of the church has been very clear. You can't follow Jesus and be a racist. It's compromising the integrity of the gospel. And that's why the Bible is so clear. God has no favorites. God doesn't show partiality. So if God doesn't show partiality, his church 
can't follow him and have partiality. And this story is a wonderful story. Because now all of a sudden the floodgates will open. And the church will be able to move forward. Irrespective of language, of race, of ethnicity. Now the word can go forward. And how does the story end? <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone will bow the knee before Jesus because he is the Lord. Which, by the way, is what it says up here. <laughs> Do we believe it? Peter had to be converted. God wants to do the same thing in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for such a wonderful story. And a story that talks even here in Montreal in August of 2023. So Lord, by your spirit, free your spirit to speak to our spirits so that we'll be able to identify those areas in our life that have to be submitted to your lordship because you don't show favorites. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for using me with my brothers and sisters today because we know that you alone get all the glory because you are Lord. We don't want to hinder your work. 